brothers and sisters. I would encourage you to pray for Nathaniel as well. For those who don't know, Nathaniel works at the International Convention Center. So I, I picked him up this morning from Rouse Hill at the bus stop and I says, bro, how was, how was work last night, man? And he goes, it was terrible. It was terrible. I says, well, he works security at ICC, so he's, in, he's, the, he's what we call the fat controller. He's in the control room with all the screens, and, and he said, well, it was, a, it was a free event, Dad, and it was packed. There were like thousands of people there. Like the auditorium where it was seats 9,000 people, and they had so much of an overflow. It went off into a second building, and one guy lost his elderly dad, and we had to find him, and, and it was just so many people. And because it was a free event, people were just walking in and out. We didn't know who was who. We didn't know who belonged to who. And it was just really, for me, stressful. So uh, and I'll go and share the good news, but he said, and tonight's going to be worse. And I was going, because now there's a conference at another building right next to it, which is going to have a whole heap of, a few other thousand people. So there's going to be a, a really like several events going on, and the other event that's on has some sort of political connotation. So the last time they had that particular conference, there was a massive protest outside it, which ended up in violence. So um, pray for safety, not only for the, the Franklin Graham, but also the other situation as well. So pray for safety for everybody. And pray for Nathaniel, because like, yeah, he's going he's to have a hairstyle like mine soon, if they're just going to carry on like that. So we'll open on a word of prayer uh, once after we open a word of prayer turn to your, uh, turn to your, actually we'll read first so turn to James chapter 2 and we're going to read verses 14 to 26 so for those of you just to remind you um, there have been a number of people who have not been able to access their right now media accounts so if you could come and see me, if you could send me a text message, even if I don't have your email, can you can please let me know so I can actually send you the invitation so you can access the Right Now Media account and you can start looking at this Bible study as we go through the book of James together as a church. So I'd really encourage you to do that. It's free of charge. You just need to sign up and you have access to all of these things and you can go through the study even on your own time if you're not part of a cell group, which... And on another reminder, if you don't belong to a cell group, we would encourage you to get involved with a cell group. Uh, it, it's, wonderful, it's wonderful to be able to gather during the week, even if it's just for prayer, even if it's just to, to get around the Word together, even if it's just for fellowship. If you're not a part of a cell group, we would love for you to be a part of one. So if you could please see me uh, or one of the leaders, um, which I won't get you to stand up. I'll, I'll, um, I'll come and see me and we'll go there, get that sorted out regarding get involved in the cell group if it's a matter of date or not date if it's a matter of day of the week let us know we can work around that if it's a matter of location we have locations i feel i sound like I'm we have locations in several different spots ladies and gentlemen we have it over in north right we have it in the hills we have it in different spots all around so there might be a cell group that would accommodate you if you're not comfortable with ages then we have uh, different ages we can we can work around that as well okay so the, the, whatever excuses i'm sure we've got a way to address it if it's just because you don't want to go well then that's that's on you that, that's not on me, okay? So I would encourage you to do that. So look at the Bible. We're going to start at verse 14 of James chapter 2. Now, just as a bit of context, this is carrying on from last week. There's uh, three things I want to look at today, which I call the argument, the comparison, and the conclusion. The argument, the comparison, and the conclusion. And what happens is last week, James is addressing these people of God's church to say to them, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith in the Savior to forgive you of your sin, to, to make you born again of His Spirit, as you have been accepted, then you too should accept others. You should not show favoritism. 
You should not show favoritism. That's not the way it works. You read in Revelation where, where Jesus is judging all people and, and, and John writes and says, I see people of every tribe, of every kindred, of every race, of every nation. Of every, yeah, there's, there's no discrimination that is shown on the part of Jesus Christ. He accepts all who place their faith in the Savior, who have come to that realization that they are a sinner in need of forgiveness and ask for that forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we carry on now, when we start at verse 14, where the argument continues. He says in verse 14, I'm reading from the NIV, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can faith or such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you say to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without, de- without deeds is dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how plainly you speak to us through your scriptures. And we ask that by your spirit, you might impress upon us today your truth from your word to make a transformation in our lives. Father, we ask that you will help each of us to heed what you are saying to the churches this morning and that we might respond accordingly. Help us, Lord, to submit to your will over our own. In Jesus' name, amen. So, We have an argument that James now presents. This argument is actually found and starts off with this one question, what good is it? What good is it? What? That's actually quite a really interesting thing because it causes you to stop. What good is it, he says in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? It is designed to provoke. That question is designed to provoke a self-examination. It is supposed to force one to seriously weigh up the legitimacy of one's faith or even discern whether they are of the faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul writes this to the Corinthian church and says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He actually says that. 
And so this is what it's provoked. This is a question to probe the hearts of people. This, what good is it, is continuing from the previous verses addressing the attitudes of one's heart, especially regarding favoritism. What good is it to favor one person over the other? Because that's not the heart of Jesus. What good is it to favor the way a person looks over another? Because that's not the heart of Jesus. What good is it to favor a person's wealth over their poverty? Because that is not the heart of Jesus. He says, what good is it if you talk a big game but do nothing to back it up? What good is it to say you have one thing and bear no substance to support it? What good is it if you talk about the all-encompassing love of God and you favor one individual over another because of wealth or appearance? What good is it if you choose to willingly live in hypocrisy where you say you have faith but have no evidence of that faith. What good is it? It is an argument that is punctuated with the statement at the end of this verse, can such faith save them? Oh, that's full on. That is full on. What good is it if you say you have one thing, can such faith save them? If you say you have one thing and have nothing to support that. It's like, okay, you got B-Rad, uh, is Brad down here or is he upstairs? Hey, B-Rad, stand up, please. You have Ash, stand up, Ash. All right. I, 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 I would, gentlemen, come out here, please. Come out, come out here. If, if Jaime was here, if, for those who don't know Jaime, Jaime is Uncle Mike and Auntie Ginny's son. He's a bodybuilder, uh, was a bodybuilder. He's in really good shape, okay? Uh, so I'll get Uncle Mike to come out the front. Oh, actually, no, Lewis. Can you come out the front, bro? Because, yeah, <laughs> thanks, bro. For those of you who don't know, this is uh, Lewis. This is Uncle Mike's son. And he's, I mean, he's, he's quite a specimen of man, too. <laughs> All right. So you've got these four. So here, here is, here's a good, what good is it, what good is it, to spend all your time exercising, all your time exercising, but you have a terrible diet. You see these gentlemen, have you, let's see, suck suck the belly in. I I have spoken with Jaime, I've spoken with with Ash, I know know B-Rad here, he has a very special diet because of the exercise he does. But you see, if these guys spend all their time exercising and they have a diet like me, their exercise is useless. It's, it's completely pointless. There's no point to it. You can't get to this and this and this by eating the way I do. It doesn't work. <laughs> Come on, man. It's embarrassing. Come on, man. Don't, 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 don't rub my tummy, okay? But see, that's, see, you talk with anybody that's exercised or serious about exercise, and they say diet is 90% of the success that you have. Is that true? Please say yes. Yeah, is that true? 80%, 80%. I see it in his arms, okay? Give give him a round of applause, please, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Okay, so this is the argument. This is the argument. What's the point? What good is it to have one thing, say you have one thing, but don't do anything else? It is, I, I call such a statement of can such faith save them as a punch in the face because it forces us to face the reality of our faith and what it really consists of. Can such faith save them? Now, we are saved by grace through faith. We are told that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But in verse 14, once again, we read, What good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? 
James did not say that good works were required for salvation. Remember, he is writing to Christians here. So these people are already saved. Nor did he say that deeds are more important than belief or more important than faith. Rather, he insists that there are two kinds of faith. One is legitimate faith and one is illegitimate faith. See, you have a faith that makes complete. That's in James chapter 2, verse 22. You see that his, Abraham's faith, and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And a faith without deeds. Verse 20 of James chapter 2. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? You see, both are belief in one sense of the word. They are both belief to an extent. But one legitimate faith goes deeper than right thinking. It extends into right living. That's what a legitimate faith does. Now, confusion might come up when we recall what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. He says this, Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. You see, Paul uses Abraham as an example of one who received God's promise not through human effort, but through faith. You read this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. So also Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. But what's interesting is this, is that James uses Abraham as the same example, but on a different, in a different way. He, use, he uses, um, sorry, he, James uses Abraham with this focus and emphasis that's slightly different to Paul's. He skips over the futility of human effort to discuss the futility of a deficient faith, the futility of a faith that lacks, faith that stops at an intellectual level. That's what he's talking about here. James's point then was that Abraham exercised authentic faith demonstrated by his actions. You read this in James chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. What faith, legitimate faith does is that it moves past what you think. It moves past the knowledge that you have and is impressed upon your heart and is outworked in how you conduct yourself. That is what legitimate faith does. Illegitimate faith fills you up with knowledge and you know a lot, but you don't do anything with it. That is an illegitimate faith. So, according to this, Abraham's deeds earned him nothing. They proved that his faith was genuine. Right faith led to right action. 
I'll say that again. Right faith led to right action. If he had not trusted God, Abraham would never have offered his son as the fulfillment of God's promise. He would never have offered a son on the altar. Paul used Abraham to show people are justified on the basis of faith. James shows that Abraham's faith was proven to be real because it was outworked in what he did. Does that make sense? That's how it was demonstrated. So then, we don't need anything but faith, provided it is the right kind of faith the faith to be saved and our behavior will show that our what our faith is made of our behavior will reveal that whether it is a legitimate faith or not for example for example um julie put up your left hand please put up left hand let everyone Shine. No, no, just, just Julie, just Julie, because she's got a, she got, she's got like a, the, the ring on her finger now, you know. She's got the ring on her finger. All right, see, I see this now. I see it. Oh, come, come stand up, please, Julie. Come here. Okay. For those that are listening that don't know, Julie, Julie, uh, Julie, she's just gotten engaged to Kenny. Hey, Kenny. Okay, okay. Woo! Okay, okay. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, if you are married, can I have a look at your, your, your the ring on your finger, please? If you're married, ring on your finger. Oh, wow. Welcome to the club, Jules. Okay, so. <laughs> not yet, not yet. Not, not yet, not yet. Now, here's what I find interesting, okay? What this represents. Wow, it's so heavy, okay? <laughs> what this represents, though, what this represents for Julie is now that her conduct, because now she has made a commitment by faith to her man, and her man has made a commitment by faith to her. He has, he has uh, put a down deposit, down, uh, deposit on, uh, a down payment, okay? But... Here's the thing, her conduct now will reflect her status that she now holds. Understand? So by faith, by faith, he has, he has trusted her with this ring to say, I'm going to commit myself to you and vice versa. So when, when they're not around, she still conducts herself in a way that's appropriate in accordance with her status. Agreed? That's right. Yeah. So behave yourself. Okay. Thank you very much. Grab a seat. That's that's the reality. You conduct yourself in accordance with with what what has been claimed or what what the, the status that you now have. And this is what happened. It, it's a natural outworking. But it's a natural outworking of the relationship she shares with Kenny, which we consummated when she says, "I do," and vice versa. Okay. There is that commitment. So, once again, it is demonstrated by the way she conducts herself. This is where you have the way that faith and works are are interjoined. They're they're like two sides of the same coin. You can't separate the two. And this is the argument James presents. What good is it? What good is it if you say you're a Christian, you say you're a follower of Jesus, and yet you do nothing that Jesus asks of you? What good is it if you say that you belong to the family of God and yet don't demonstrate the love of God to those that are in that family? What good is it? What good is it? It's not. Why? Because your faith is demonstrated. The legitimacy of your faith is demonstrated in how you live that faith out. And that's his argument. This is the argument that James presents here. And that should, that should be a punch to the face. Because there are many people today who say they're Christian, yet their lives don't reflect that. Who say they know the Lord Jesus Christ, 
I have my faith, but there are no works that support such a claim. This is the reason why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, you examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Because what he then does to continue this argument, he moves on to what I call the comparison. And now this is scary. This is done in two ways. Two ways. The first is the type of belief, the type of faith that is purely intellectual, is the type of faith that gives mental assent to the facts laid out before them. It is the type of faith that is knowledge-based but has not an impact at all in a person's life in any real transformational or influential way. And the way James makes this comparison is using two things. The first one, I'll read the verses to you first. He says, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. That's the argument. He's, he's continuing this argument for them to sit down and think about it. Then he makes these two comparisons. The first one is found in verse 19, and he uses the demons. He says, You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. He is making a comment here from Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, or 4 to 6. It's called the Shema in, in Hebrew. And when they talk about, Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. Uh, Jesus quotes it in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, when the Pharisees ask him, What are the greatest commandments? And he starts with the Shema uh, to explain that to them. Uh, because that's like how Jewish, how, just to show the, the Jewishness of Jesus to the readers. But he says this, he says, okay, the first way is this. I want to compare it to the demons. And this is what Francis Chan says. You'll see this in the video study uh, on Right Now Media. He says this, you believe that, the God, that, you believe that, the, that God is one, great. So, the de- so do the demons in hell. In fact, the demons take it a step further. They shudder. It's a phrase meaning it's like the hair on your arms are standing up on end because you're so terrified. He, James, goes, the demons of hell are terrified of God, so what's the difference between you and the demon when you say you believe in God? You might even have a fear of God. You see the difference is action. The difference with demons is even though they know there's God and even though they fear him, they refuse to transform their lives. They refuse to come under his leadership. This was actually really quite scary. You see, if there is a faith without works, if there's an illegitimate faith, a faith that's based solely on knowledge, you believe in God, hey, that's great. That puts you on the level of a demon. If you have a faith that is word only, if you have a faith that does not transform your life, if you have a faith that does not affect you in such a way that that moves you, that motivates you to, to, to submit your life to a God that loves you, a God that loves you so much that he died for you, if you, if you have a faith that doesn't move you anywhere from the seat of this church to do nothing else, then you are on the same level as a demon. Actually, the demon is probably one up from you because it says there that the demons shudder. They tremble. That when they look at the awesomeness of who God is, and you see this demonstrated in Luke chapter 8 when Jesus sends the demons from the pigs, uh, sorry, into the pigs, from the possessed, possessed man into the pigs. He sends them there 
What do they do? When they see Jesus, they say, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. We want nothing to do with you. And he says, you send us to the pigs. You see how the demons reacted in the presence of the Lord Jesus? They freaked out. They humbled themselves and they requested, please send us to the pigs. Don't cast us into the abyss. What did Jesus do? Go. You see how their response is to the Son of God? You look in Acts chapter 19 when you have the possessed man and and these guys try to cast these demons out and the response of this demon was like, Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. You, I don't know. And he tears them to shreds. You see the difference? Look, I'm, not, I'm not, look, as harsh as this, I, I'm, I'm not sitting there sitting there going, oh, yeah, you're a bad, bad Christian. I'm not, I'm, look, that's not my intent. This is what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that if we have a faith that is not transformed into how we live, we are on the same par as the demons of hell. That's where we're at. And that's why James makes that comparison. Like I said, we can talk a big game. We can talk a big game. Man, we can sound spiritual as much as we want. But unless, unless there has been, I mean, think, think about this. When you know someone that has sacrificed for you so much, I think about my parents. I think about my parents. You see, so, I mean, one of the greatest pictures of God's love to their people is, is supposed to be the love of a parent toward their child. And the things that a parent will give up for their child. I, I spoke with Jimmy about this, and I love the example Jimmy gave. Just, just the things. And for Jimmy, it's not a hassle. I didn't ask him. I like talking about him when he's not here. Oh, he, hey, Jimmy, sorry. Okay, so, so I, remember, I remember, though, when talking with Jimmy, there are things that Jimmy doesn't mind sacrificing because of his love for his children. And it's not a hassle. It's not a hassle. If anything, it's the opportunity for him to serve his children. And that's, that's what, so when we look at what parents have done for our kids, you have no issue submitting to your parents' love. You have no issue obeying what your parents have to say because of what they've been willing to show and how they express their love to you. This is the same love magnified in the person of Jesus Christ. When you look, and I've, I know I'm, I'm like a parrot and going on and on and on, but when you look at the love that Jesus Christ displayed toward you and I, when you look at the extent that he was willing to go to so that you and I could be saved from our sin, so that you and I could be born again and have our spirits renewed, so that you and I could have our names written in the book of life and be welcomed into his family. When we look at that, he, he died in order to bring that to us. He died in order for us to be cleansed. He died in order for us to belong to him and to have purpose in life. He died for that. It's in order for us to give that to us. And when we look at that, what should that do? That should humble us. And so when he asks, Joe, 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 tell someone about me, please. What's my response? Oh, I don't know. They They might make fun of me. The work should happen naturally because it's a response of love to what he has done for us. But this is why he makes this comparison. This is where we're at. And this is why it's a slap in the face. Where are we in our faith? How is our faith manifest? How is the reality of what Jesus has done, how has that affected us and how we live? So that's the first comparison he makes. 
The second comparison I think is actually quite interesting. It's actually the prostitute. In verse 25, he talks about Rahab. See, if we remember last week, in the first 13 verses of chapter 2, he's talking about favoritism. And so the second comparison that he goes, he talks about the faith of Abraham in comparison to the faith of Rahab. You have the patriarch of the Hebrew people, a man revered and identified as the friend of God. That's in chapter 2, verse 23. You have a legitimate faith evidenced in his life when he gets called and moves out. And this faith of Abraham, the patriarch, the one that the Hebrew people knew, understood, and revered is compared to a prostitute called Rahab. You have, you have this contrast of people from extremes. So you read in verse 25, in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? It is of note that this comparison is made, especially following this whole argument against favoritism. The man compared, oh, I think I put it up there. The man compared with the woman. The Jew compared with the Gentile. The admired pioneer compared with the woman of ill repute. The patriarch compared with the prostitute. And yet both are attributed to being people of a faith that transformed their lives and was evidenced in their action. It was evidenced in their action. She, she revealed her trust and her faith by what she did. Remember what happened when she let the two spies out? They said, hang down the scarlet cord so that when we come, you'll be protected. She asks for his family. Says, look, we won't be responsible for them. You must bring them into your home. And so that faith was manifest by what they did. And you see this all throughout the scriptures. When the children of Israel had all of these snakes going around biting them. Moses is told, create a bronze snake and put the snake on a post. And for people to be saved and delivered from their snake bite, they must look at that bronze snake. Now, how is that faith manifest? How do they show and express that their faith is legitimate and that they believed what the word of God said? was evidenced by looking at the snake you can have faith that sure that i mean if i get bitten by a snake and i'm told you need to look at this bronze snake to be safe i can oh, i'm sure it'll be okay i'll be fine whatever it might be i'm sure i believe the word of god but that's not actually evidence until i look that's what genuine faith does so this is what happens here so you have this argument that's presented faith without works is dead then you have these two comparisons that are made. Comparison with the demons of hell, that if you're faith without works, if there's no faith that evidences itself in transformational living, then you're like the demons of hell, or a legitimate faith that is like Rahab's, that is evidenced by what you do. Once again, it's not about salvation, it's the legitimacy of one's faith. And so he says, okay, this is how it works. You have these two things, both evidenced, both evidenced by what they do and this is the challenge so you have this comparison and I'm, I'm just curious where would you lay yourself in that where would you line up what what boasts sort of what best sort of can you align with 
regarding this comparison, are you like Rahab? I'm not saying you're, you know, but anyway, are you like Rahab? Are you like demons? That's, that's the challenge. Once again, it's all about the self-examination. Examine yourselves to be whether you're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5, I'd encourage you to memorize that. But it leads to the final conclusion that James wants to write regarding this particular issue. And the conclusion we're going to look at is just now, look, several years ago, several years ago, this is my family, okay, so several years ago, that's, that's, uh, that's on my mum's funeral day, my, my mum's funeral, I went, I went back to New Zealand to celebrate my mother's departure to glory. I had the privilege of officiating the service and got to share a little bit about the hope granted to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the comfort I took away from that day was the reality for my mum that I will see her again, that the treasure that was within her has now been taken to glory as well. Now, as I looked, uh, the coffin's on the right there. That's where my mum is lying down. Now, here's what's interesting. When I saw my mum and I saw her body lying there, it was really interesting because she sort of still looked the same. Like, you know, she had her arms and her legs. You know, she, she, was, just, she was lying there. And, and, and whilst there was nothing missing, whilst there was nothing really there to say that, you know, there was a deformity or anything like that, my mum was there, but the, the, the sparkle in her eye was gone. The, the, warmth, the warmth of her body had vanished. Why? Because her spirit had left her earthly tabernacle. Her spirit had gone. And now the reason why I want to share with you this sort of somber illustration is because the conclusion that James presents at the end of the chapter is this, that as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Think about that. When I look at my mum and I see my mum that gives the appearance of being her, but it is not her, that is the exact same thing of us who say we are Christians and have no deeds to support that. No evidence of that relationship we share. There's the appearance of it. It looks okay, but it's not real. See, the way a body is lifeless, ineffective, and incapable of doing anything meaningful in the world is the description of one's faith that is absent of works. That person's faith is lifeless, ineffective, and incapable of doing anything meaningful regarding your standing before God, meaning your salvation. Because you can share the word. Even as non-Christians, there's a story I heard just recently from a preacher, John Wesley, I believe it was, who traveled hundreds of thousands of miles and shared the gospel. Early on in his ministry, after sharing the gospel with thousands, comes back and realizes he is not a Christian. He'd done all of God's work leading people to Christ without the Spirit of Christ within him. The word of God worked within his heart. The word that he proclaimed worked within his heart to finally bring him to that point of salvation in his own life. And then he continued to preach. So, you know, we, we can. We, we can go to church. I met a gentleman, and I think I've shared this, the gentleman named Sess. Sess lives next to Borkham Hills High School. I've known Sess now for the 12 years I've been there. 
I remember he is now 94 years old, 94 years old. I went and had a chat with him. So I, I, he just stands out the front of his house. So I, I'll talk with him because I park just out front of his place. And he always says, hey, Joe. Hey, Seth, how you doing? Having a chat. Got to talk with him. But he's been going to an Anglican church his whole life. He became a Christian at 84. And I'm like, he goes to me, hey, Joe. And I went, yeah, bro. Because I became a Christian. Really, man? And we're talking. We're talking. He says, yeah, we, we just got a new minister. He took us through Christianity Explained. And I realized after being at this church for 60 years that I'm not a Christian. And I said, what? That is so exciting. And you know, we prayed. We talked. And we prayed. And, and he's, now he's 94. He's 94 now. Still, still going. Still going. Still walking around. Still going to church. They've limited his driving to uh, a two-kilometer radius which he says is useless, so he walks everywhere anyway. But that, that, that's what I find fascinating is this. See, you can be within that thing and, and that context. And, and Seth had to come to that realization. Well, God brought him to that realization. See, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, well, yeah, you can still be loving, and it might still benefit somebody, but it does nothing for your standing before God. You can be patient and, 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 and kind, and there's nothing wrong with that. Please, there's nothing wrong with that, but you can do that as a non-Christian as well. But that does nothing for your standing before God. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, you can still be compassionate and, and merciful, yes, but that does nothing for your standing before God. Somebody asked me this the other day and said to me, Joe, well, hang on a sec. Well, other religions promote good things. Other religions talk about this, that, and the other. And I said, yeah, that's great. I'm really glad that those things do. So what makes your, your religion so different? Because all of those things do nothing for your standing before God. It does nothing to take away your sin. It does nothing to change your nature. It does nothing to, to help you in, your, in, 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 in ridding yourself of your old nature and giving you a new nature. It does nothing to do that. And that's the reason why Jesus Christ is so important. <clears throat> you may be generous and give to those in need, but it does nothing for your forgiveness. It does nothing with you for your repentance. It doesn't do anything about your troubled state before God. And this is the reality that we must look at and the challenge laid out before us in James. Once again, I'm not saying you need works to be delivered from your sin or to gain forgiveness, but works are evidence of the reality of Jesus' saving grace. Now, last week I stressed the importance of one's heart. Last week I looked at how you can do all the right things with the wrong intentions, and the Pharisees are a great example of this. Does that mean then that we shouldn't do anything because I don't feel like it or because my heart's not in it? You know, should I do it then? Because wouldn't I just be hypocritical? If, oh Lord, I don't feel like reading my Bible, so I won't. Oh Lord, I, I don't feel like going to church today, so I won't. I don't feel like going to my small group. I don't feel like this. My heart's not in it. Oh, I don't, my heart's not in going to go and share the gospel with this person, Lord, so I won't do it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. No, because if we waited to do things because we felt like it, if we, if we waited to do things because our heart, until our heart was into it, then we wouldn't do anything. And we already know that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We're told that in Jeremiah. So how can you trust your heart? No, there is never a reason not to do the right thing, whether you feel like it or not. There are, I mean, you talk, you know, I see so many uncles and aunties here that have worked decades, that have worked decades. I see brothers and sisters here, like, I'm not saying uncles and aunties aren't brothers and sisters, but I see people around my, my age, 
well, there's not many people my age, but maybe a little bit younger. younger. Now, you guys, you do things because it's the right thing to do. Not because you feel like it, not because your heart's in it, but because it's the right thing to do. You go to work to provide for your family because it's the right thing to do. You, you, you actually submit uh, to, to your wife so she can be able to do something because it's the right thing to do. You force yourself to do things because it's just the right thing to do, correct? Not because you're getting paid, not because any other, because it's the right thing to do. Now, we are given a standard within the scriptures of what are the right and the righteous things to do. And irrespective of how you feel about it, you still do it. That's, that's just the reality of it. We must never overlook the reality that your mind, your emotions, I think I've got it up here. You must never lose fact that, that your mind and your, your will and your emotions, that's a part of what makes you up. You are not governed by your emotions. They are a gift of God, but you are not to be governed by them. Your will is a part of who you are, and that should take precedence over it. We are told in our mind, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, that we are to bring into captivity every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, which means this, that we make the willful choice to bring into captivity all those things, all my desires. Well, I, look, I have control over them by the power of God because he has given me authority over them. That's where it comes down to. <clears throat> We do a myriad of things we don't like or feel like. We do numerous things our hearts are into, but because we do them because it's righteous. Uh, work, acceptance, forgiveness, compassion, holiness, the things we are called to be as the children of God are the things that we become as we prioritize the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Our sinful nature that no longer rules us wrestles with our spiritual nature as he rules in us then my being is slowly conformed to the image of Jesus. This means then the training of our souls, the training of our wills, of our emotion, and of our mind. And in doing so, the development of our soul, sorry, the development of our souls learns to grow in our thinking and doing of God's will. Case in point, I spoke to Jono at the men's, at the men's uh, dinner. Jono runs marathons, and I was asking Jono questions. He has come to appreciate, he has come to appreciate many things about running long distances, and, and I, I had a bit of a chat with him about that. He has come to appreciate the physical benefit that's afforded him by running further and further and faster and faster, even if it's nothing more to say, I did it. But he has trained himself. And I asked him, how do you feel about it, bro? How do you feel like getting up and running long distances? And he told me at the start, it was really difficult. At the start, it was hard. And he shared with me a story about how he, he did this run. And he says, okay, I'm going I'm to run it again next year. And I'm going to do better. And he did. Not by much, but he did better. And he did better. But every time he went out, what happens is he trains himself to run. And as he trains himself, he comes into line with his training. Ask Uncle Mike, he's a runner. Ask Color, he's a runner. Ask Ash, he used to run. He's got a bad knee now. Okay, so, but, but that's what happens. You, you train yourself. You may not like going, I, I heard the story of a man who doesn't like hiking with his wife. His wife loves hiking. And he's like, I, I, I hate it. I hate hiking. And he says, but I will train myself to appreciate hiking. 
And so he shared and he said, when I went out there, did I like it? No, but what I did is I started looking at things that were good in that hiking trip. I would look at the view and think, that's amazing. Because if I go out there and the whole time I'm thinking, oh, I'm so tired, oh, the ground, oh, the bugs, oh, the moss, oh. If you go out there and you look at every negative thing about it, well, of course you're not going to change your mind and your heart toward it. It's about training your hearts and training your souls. So it is too with the things of God. We are told in the scriptures to guard our hearts. Why? For from it springs the issues of life. We are told to guard our hearts. We are are to train our, we train our kids. We train our kids all the time. So as they grow up, they become mature and they become responsible. We train our kids to do that. We need to be likewise training our own hearts, our own minds, our own souls, our own emotions regarding the things of God. And as we train that, will we like it? No. Will we enjoy it? Not right away. But I tell you what does happen, your attitude begins to change. And as the word of God continues, they'll continue to to mold and continue to shape. Our view of the things of God, the works that we are called to do, some of them seem somewhat uncomfortable and stretch us in our attitude toward others. But if I view such things to train myself in, then I will be the recipient of the eternal reward that benefits the kingdom of God. That's what will happen, which means this. I know for a fact, I know for a fact that I'm not the most agreeable person at times. And I know that there are people that, that, that I probably irritate. But because God says you're to accept me and love me and forgive me, because God says that you're to bless me, well then, come on now. And vice versa, and vice versa, that there's, that there's people here that God has blessed me with to love and, and, and to bear up and to forbear and, and, to, and to accept. And do we get along? No. You know why we don't get along? It's not because of Jesus. It's because of Joe's sinful heart and because of Pam's sinful heart. But we get along. The reason I use Pam is because we get along. Hey, buddy. Yeah, buddy. You know what I mean? But that's what it is. That's what it is. It's about laying my will aside and allowing God's will to come to the forefront to show the same love and acceptance that he afforded me to show to you. That's the conclusion. See, this is the conclusion of the matter, okay? The argument, the comparison, and the conclusion. What good is it? The good that comes from an address such as this is so that we as followers of Jesus Christ will give pause and assess ourselves individually. Is my faith truly evidenced in how I live or is it merely intellectual assent on par with the demons? Am I a doer of God's word or here only? Is my faith genuine or governed by circumstance? A number of confronting questions, but the joy I take from such a passage as this is the comfort that God has made known such pitfalls in order for you and I to guard our hearts more zealously. This is what I take from this. As, as scary and as confronting as it's punching the face this passage is, I'm excited the fact that God has made known to me from his word what my heart is like and where my heart is really at. 
and humbles me to make sure that I submit to his will, his will and his heartbeat as I look at you, as I look at my family, as I look at my next door neighbor, as I even look at myself, that I see his heart shine forth in that. That's exciting. And that's the blessing that we learned this week from James. So I'm going to ask uh, the music team if they could come forward, please. We'll close with our final song. And then after that, if the prayer team would come forward, if, if you want to be prayed for this morning, we would love to pray for you. If you don't want to come forward, that's fine. Ask the person next to you to pray for you. Ask the person next to you to, 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 just to open up and to share with them what God's been teaching them and what God's been teaching you. I encourage you to continue in God's Word. Continue reading. And that prayerfully we can go from strength to strength, from faith to faith for the glory of God alright sorry I always I, I, I suppose I should say this hey, when, I'm, when I'm talking up the front you don't have to stop music team I'm talking so you guys can get up here because then it's really awkward when I stand here silently waiting for everybody to walk up there we go so if you'd like to be upstanding we'll close in our final song Nothing compares to this What a wonderful name
Father, as we humble ourselves before you, we thank you for the wonderful name of Jesus. We thank you that in him we have life. We thank you that in him we have power. We thank you that in him we have all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Now unto him who is able to keep us from stumbling and presenting us before your glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and to eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.